Welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. Guys, how we doing? Good? Was that funny, Maggie? That was good. <laughs> Maggie, we all like your hat. Do we like Maggie's hat this morning or what? Golf Finland? I didn't even know the Finns knew how to golf. Apparently they do. Hey, why don't you stand up with me? We are going to read the scripture as we do uh, every Sunday morning, the thing we do here. And we are now in Proverbs chapter 6, as we've been walking through the Proverbs together since the beginning of our kind of fiscal year, starting in September. And if you will, starting in verse 1, read it with me. Ready? Let's do it. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger... If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Lord, we just thank you for your scripture. Um, and even we thank you for the weird scriptures. <laughs> and we, we know, God, that your whole word is life-giving to us, God, and it teaches us the patterns and pathways of living in your goodness and abundance, God, that it warns us from danger and leads us to life, God, and that your way is a way of life and life more abundantly. So God, we ask that your word would be planted into our heart to produce a kingdom life, the life of your kingdom in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 You can be seated. Give somebody a handshake, a firm grab of the hand, and then give Maggie a hand for playing the keys. Maggie, thank you so much. Some really great pads. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to do, um, I'm going to kind of half sit this week because, um, I am, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather. I had a 103.5 degree fever and my wife told me that was bad. And I was, I was, had, had a really severe fever and I was so excited to go to bed that night to go into, um, you know, you know, when the kids at Willy Wonka's factory, they go into the tunnel and it's insane. I was so excited to go there in my sleep that night. I had a fever. I'm like, I'm going to go into insane dream mode. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my fever was raising. And my wife was like, you really need to take Tylenol. You're going to die in your sleep. I was like, but I want to have crazy dreams. And she's like, no, take Tylenol. We don't need you dying. And I'm like, but I have life insurance. You'll be okay. And uh, I, I, <laughs> I obeyed her. And decided to take the Tylenol, and immediately my fever dropped like six degrees. And then I didn't have, I just had regular dreams, unfortunately. Um, but I'm, I might sit for a bit this morning because I'm not totally uh, energized. So, welcome to King's Church. I, I had this idea I wanted to just remind, uh, um, remind us about kind of the nature of, of this church that we have, this gathering of believers, and the first. And primary thing that I wanted to talk about this morning is, before we get into the scripture is that 
is that we believe in a real God that actually exists. And it's a funny, it's a funny thing to think about, because when I think about God and I think about the world's idea of God, the world is always trying to, trying to depersonalize God, like make him an abstract force. If he actually exists and he's real, we want to make him as abstract and ambiguous as we possibly can. So he's not, so he doesn't care about us or what we do. He's just kind of like a vibrating force, like taking care of string theory out in outer space somewhere, right? And he's not personal. But that's not the God that is revealed to us in the scripture or, or the God that reveals himself to people throughout the history of mankind is not an impersonal force. It's actually a God with a personhood, a personality that reveals his personhood to us. And he's a God of things that we don't reckon with an unambiguous or an ambiguous force. He's a God of beauty, which is weird. He's a God of complexity. He's a God of, of adventure. He's a God of, of, of a compound uh, uh, structure, like, like so complex in structure that it's hard to fathom, but at the same time delicate in his in his being in his function in his relating to mankind and we can almost see it in the nature of the world he's given us and it says in Romans chapter 1 that God has revealed himself and his way to us and part of the way we know that is because we realize some days that when we wake up, we look at the world around us, when we can get out of like, oh, I got bills to pay and there's a coronavirus and you know who's going to get elected and uh, is, is Kim Jong whoever going to nuke me? If we can get out of that nonsense and say, I actually have been gifted this strange world with sunsets and sunrises and constellations and beauty and love and family and fire and meals and adventure and intoxication and this incredible place that someone put me and said, live an adventure here in this place. If we can remember that fundamentally our place in the world is not spinning on a rock, starving and freezing like Mars might be, right? But actually set inside of an adventure that's full of beauty and danger and mystery and discovery. That's the kind of God that created this place. That's the kind of God that wants to know us. Now, like we do this thing with math and science and we're like, oh, these are the real things. These are the important things. <laughs> and we take... My mathematician laughed. And we take the things like fairy tales and adventure and beauty and romance and we say, those are for children. Like, those are the things that aren't important. And sometimes it seems to me that children actually recognize the most important things. And that Jesus actually said, if you want to come to the kingdom of heaven, you have to come to the kingdom of heaven like a little child. He said, like, for ultra-mathematicians, it's harder for them to get in than it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Well, he didn't say that about mathematicians, but my point is about the calculated ones, the ones that care about the hard and cold things as, a, as opposed to the things that are beautiful like family and friends and warmth and hearts, the things that actually are of value in this world. And that's the kind of God that wants to know us, one that values friends 
and family and relationships and, and longevity. It's not the God that is exacting and a tax collector and like, oh, you didn't do one little thing. I'm going to blow your whole world up. That's not the kind of God we're talking about. And it's also not the kind of God that's like, he's so austere that he's removed himself and he's sitting upon this throne super high and he's looking down upon the peasants super low. That actually, it's, even the, the intimacy that we have between us is almost a prophetic symbol of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. It's a picture prophetically of his nature. He created it. He's the progenitor of it. And so the things that we have on this earth, they show how good and how incredible God is. Because what we have is just like a, like a semblance of how good and beautiful he is. And even in, 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 I find in like, and I don't mean to bang denominational churches, but some denominational Christians that I know, they tend to depersonalize God. And like he's a really important king on a throne, like telling like these people did bad and these people did good. That's not how he created this world. That is not what he's given us as evidence of who he is. Romans tells us that the world itself evidences who God is. And um, I want to live the kind of life where I'm reminded that God cares. It says in Genesis, we said this, I think last week, maybe two weeks ago, I think it was Genesis chapter 6, that when mankind goes bonkers, and it's like, it says they're full of vice and wickedness and murderous thoughts, and he's like, I got to wipe out the earth. It says, and it broke God's heart, that God has a personality, and he actually wants to know you personally. And um, the world we live in, where it's like the rage for a relationship, or like you're never going to be fulfilled without a relationship, all of that kind of conversation. The truth is that God made us to have a relationship with him, and he will actually be our ultimate fulfillment. And the other kind of Stuff is, is, a, uh, is a shell game. What was the point? The point is, King's Church, we really think that God is actually real. That's my point. He's a real person. He really wants to know you. He's also God, and he's holy, and he's righteous, and we don't understand him. He's not totally safe, but he's beautiful, and he's good, and he's just. And he's called us to be in this relationship with him. And um, that's, where we're, that's where we've aimed the, our ship and if you want to jump on board, we're happy to have you. Amen? So we're, we're walking through Proverbs, and part of the reason we're walking through Proverbs is because um, we feel like it. <laughs> That's it. All right, Proverbs verse 6, chapter 1. So this whole, now we're into this ninth admonitionary discourse. So, so the Proverbs is broken up into kind of three pieces, and the first piece are big chunks of lessons that the writer of Proverbs are saying, these are the really important kind of big overarching concepts I want you to get in order to live your life in wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a book about wisdom and the writer is trying to encourage us to walk in wisdom and in God's ways of wisdom. The second part of the book are all these kind of individual little pithy sayings that are easy to memorize and, and they're broken down. They're not big concepts, they're all broken up. And then the end of the book is three different individuals writing their most important things 
But we're in the big admonitions, and we're in the ninth admonition today. We've walked our way through eight thus far, and the ninth is a warning against co-signing, which is like such a bizarre thing. I asked Bethany if she wanted to preach this week. She's like, no, I'm not doing preaching on co-signing. I was like, please, I have a fever. I don't want to do co-signing. I'm joking. Um, Co-signing is really an important thing, and I'm going to talk bizarrely about it this morning. And I'm going to talk bizarrely about how Jesus is revealed really clearly and directly through it. And so the first part of that scripture in the Passion, which is a more English translation or a more common translation, uh, common non-translation, but um, copying in in common vernacular says, My son, if you co-sign for a loan for an acquaintance and guarantee his debt, you'll be sorry you ever did. You'll be trapped by your promise and legally bound by the agreement. Um, have, you ever, have you ever gotten in a bad loan situation where like, I wish I didn't sign up for that loan? Ever, anybody? No, just me? Okay, well, all right, a few of us. I, I'm, 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 not, I'm a car guy that doesn't actually know about the inner workings of cars. You know, as a, as a young guy, as a boy, I wanted to have a cool car. As a teenager, I got a kind of a cool car. I got the Ford Probe, which was like a, a, a kind of a race car-y kind of Ford, but the name was Probe. And if you're going to name a race car, I mean, what is a Probe? What does a Probe do? Like a physical probe is not a good thing when you're a teenager to have your car named probe because your friends make fun of you for having a probe as a car and there's all kinds of holes and probes that are, you know, get attached to your personhood. Um, if I was to name a car, it would be like the Lightning or the, the Roadrunner or something cool and fast, not the probe. Let's, come on, guys. Uh, so I drove that car into the ground because I was bad at taking care of things, just not good as a 17-year-old, and uh, I went away to this Bible school, really gave my life to the Lord then, and I'm like, okay, God, I'm gonna, you and I are going to do things together. Let's get, let's get my life together. I'm not going to destroy everything I touch. And I needed a new car, so my dad took me to his friend who was a car salesman, and he said, um, David, I want, you to sh- I want to show you this car. So we get there. It's wintertime. It's January, and it's like six. 15 at night in January, which means it's dark outside, okay? And so there's two things that you don't pick at nighttime, right? Your cars and your wives. It's like both are bad things to choose in the dark because you wake up in the morning, it's a rough morning, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, I... I, my dad's like, you really should buy this car. And even in the dark, I'm like, it doesn't look that great right now in the dark. I don't think it'll look better in the morning. And my dad's like, no, it's great. And this guy's like, listen, this is the best car in the whole universe. It was a Chevy Nova. But it wasn't a cool Chevy Nova from the 70s. It was like the Chevy Nova when Chevy decided to copy Toyotas. It was the bad Chevy Nova. And it was an upstate New York Chevy Nova, which means it had rust cancer all over the outside of it. But I couldn't see it because it was dark out. And so I buy the car. I put down whatever, a grand, and then I have to pay off another few grand on it. And I drive it home, and it's kind of like... You know, when you're driving at home and you just have a bad feeling. <laughs> you're driving, I'm driving this car in the dark home. And the, the next morning, uh, the lights come on and I just, like, it's got cancerous growths on the outside of it. And 
on the inside, I didn't notice, but the ceiling was falling, like the whole, you know, do you remember that? Do we remember that used to happen? I don't think it happens anymore, but it used to happen. And um, I, so I, I ripped off the ceiling out of frustration, and then it just had like this Cheetos dust ceiling now, because I ripped off the top, and I'm a relatively tall person, so when I would get in and I would forget that I have a Cheetos dust ceiling, I would have Cheetos dust hair on my head. Right, so we got the cancer on the outside, the Cheetos dust ceiling, and I'm not joking. This is not hyperbole. And uh, this is the third thing. When I would drive, this the water would come up through the underside of the car and soak the back seat of the car. And in New York, we have salt on the roads, so I had this literally salt encrusted back seat of my car that was like you could knock on it, like that was the back seat of the car. And I was like, Dad, why would you ever do this to me, you know? Uh, and I hated the car, drove it across the country. Uh, about a month later, I drove it across the country because I moved from New York to Portland. And I, in Colorado, the clutch went out on the car. And I was like, Lord, I don't want to be stuck in Colorado. I don't even know where Colorado is, <laughs> you know? And um, made it, car broke down. I was, I was so happy when it broke down. I cursed its existence. And, and then I, was, I actually got a job in, my, in college at the, in my first semester of, of West Coast College at a car dealership, at a Honda dealership. I was selling Hondas, and I was the worst salesman in existence. I would sell one to three cars a month, and the normal salesman would sell 25 to 30 cars a month. I was truly that bad. I was a little skinny, pimply-faced 20-year-old, and uh, it's taken me a while to bloom. Is that okay? Can that be okay? <laughs> And uh, people would just walk up to me and be like, are you not the janitor? <laughs> like, why do you have a suit on that doesn't fit? Why does the janitor have a suit on? And uh, so the car guys were like, hey, David, we know you don't have a car right now. We have this, this Jeep Cherokee that just came in on a trade, came in at like two grand. We'll give you a deal. We'll sell it to you for six grand because they're car people and they should all burn in hell. But um, I said yes because I was a moron. And I remember signing the loan documents and uh, in the back seat with like the big oaf of a car salesman. He's like, sign the documents. And I'm like, all right, it's going to be great. And I felt this feeling. God's like, don't sign the documents. Don't be a moron. Don't do this. And my stomach is turning on the inside. And I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. I get the car and I'm driving to the gas station to fill it up with gas. This is Red Jeep Cherokee. It's much better than the Cancer Mobile. And uh, I fill it up with gas, and then I go in the front seat, and I, I, I literally just bought the car minutes ago. And I turn the engine, and it's like clunk, 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 clunk. And my heart drops because I know these rat dirt holes are not going to let me re return the car. They're going to be like, it's too bad. You know used cars are like, you get what you, you get, what you get, go away. And I just signed a loan for five grand. And I'm like, Jesus, please help me. And I'm turning the thing and it will not start. And I'm like, God, I promise. This is a true story. I'm like, I promise I'll return this car if you let this thing, you, you get, get me to get it back. I turn it again, the car starts. I drive it back to the, to the dealership, and I beg the guys to take it back. And they're like, yeah, fine. If you'll buy another car later, I'm like, of course I'll buy another car later, of course. Which I was lying. I wasn't planning on ever buying a car from them. And so they took it back. But I remember the idea of the, the turning over the ignition switch and the clunk and knowing that I had a broken down car that I had just paid six or $7,000 that I didn't owe. 
that I would be paying off for years and years. You know that feeling, the, the idiot feeling combined with the weight of guilt, combined with the weight of debt that you're gonna have to now carry that mistake into the future for five or six years? Especially as a college kid, when you bear, I couldn't even afford a burrito at the time. What am I buying a Cherokee, Jeep Cherokee for? What am I doing? So, <laughs> the scripture practically is talking about this idea, this idea that basically don't ever co-sign for someone else. And the idea is pretty straightforward. The idea is if you co-sign for somebody else, you don't know and you have no control of that person's life. And if they crash and burn because of their own positive decisions to crash and burn, you crash and burn. So get up, it's wild, it says, right now, before you go to bed tonight, run to the person that you made that contract with and get out of the contract. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. And, and like, I cannot imagine I've had the feeling of debt and making horrible decisions, but in the, in the culture of Israel here that Solomon is talking to, we're not just talking about my credit scores in pain, we're talking about indentured servitude, you become a slave. Like, hey, I'm buddy, I'm going to sign your loan. I'm sure you're going to take care of it. And if you don't, I go into slavery and or my family goes into slavery. It's a really tough idea. In the Bible, there are two kinds of slaves. There are slaves that are chattel slaves, and there are slaves that are debt slaves. So there's this legal term called chattels. It means movable object. Like this computer would be a chattel. Like your car would be a chattel. The stuff in your house is a chattel. Real property is this other side of property law is stuff that's immovable. Your home, your property, real property versus chattels. Chattel slavery are slavery that are taken. They're moved from their homeland, usually in the context of war or takeover. But this, what Solomon is warning about, this kind of debt slavery, which was actually against the law in the Bible that, that, that Israelites weren't supposed to be indentured slaves in the, in the sense of debt uh, slavery, but oftentimes, because the people of Israel often broke God's commandments and copied the practices of the worlds they were around, they began to do these same practices. Actually, we see in Hammurabi's code, the oldest uh, uh, code or law structure that exists in the human race, there's this indentured servitude thing that says husbands can only sell their wives and their kids for up to three years at a time. After that, it's no good. So, um, which is, you know, that's it's a strange law. You know, I'm like, I can sell my wife and children for a few bucks. It's a bad idea. I, it's a funny idea in the sense of free markets because we think we live in a free market society. A free market is where I can literally be in so much debt that I then become enslaved by someone else that I have to actually work for that person to pay off my debt. And so they had private debt prisons and or you would just work for the estate of the person that is your creditor until that debt is paid off. That's how it worked, that's how it often took place. There were a couple of other different structures of slavery, but the primary two structures were this chattel structure and this servitude structure where you would become a slave of your master until that debt was paid off. Or someone could, and this often happened, voluntarily say, I want to become a slave for X amount of years. I'm going to get this X amount of dollars and I'm going to give it to my family or set my wife and kids up or give it to my dad to help them with their life. And so people would engage voluntarily in actual slavery and submit themselves to slavery for a term of years. And Solomon is saying, 
if you co-sign for someone, if you become the surety for their debt, you will most likely be enslaved by being stupid, by your own folly, by your lack of wisdom, by your wanting just to please the people around you. Do, you know, sometimes we just do dumb things to please people around us, and God doesn't think that's a great idea. Right? God asks us to walk in mercy and grace and truth, that we're supposed to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, that we can walk in wisdom and character in the same time. And sometimes we say, look, buddy, I just can't do this. I had a uh, friend, this was like a year ago, call me up, and he's got abysmal, abysmal credit. Um, and he's been in and out of getting sued on credit card and debt stuff as long as I've known him. And uh, asks all of these people that I know for money. And he called me up one day and he's like, David, you know what? I'm not going to ask you for any money. I just want you to know I really appreciate you as a pastor. And I really think you've been doing so great as a lawyer. And I'm, I want to ask you for a favor. It's not money. Will you please co-sign on a loan? <laughs> and I was like, uh, no. Click. Hang up. And uh, then, he, then he hounded me for like six weeks. This is a true story. And I'm like, dude, I'm never, ever, 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 ever going to damage my family because you're going to screw up. And he's like, that is so judgmental. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Sorry. I have to protect my family. And I have to protect what God's given me to, to be a steward of. And um, I, I didn't have the scripture memorized. I could have said Proverbs 6 1 says not to co sign on uh, the loans of idiots. Uh, you know, what's funny is um, in the New Testament, there are, Jesus is living in this world where there's slaves. In the people of God are living with slaves, but the Roman kingdom is really living with slaves, and it's a massive part of their economic system. Do you know, actually, today in the world today, there are approximately 35 million slaves currently throughout the world? Do you know that 8 million of those slaves currently in the world are debt slaves? That means the other 25 or 27 million are chattel slaves, which means they've been kidnapped and stolen and sold. Do you know that in the United States, pre-1776, there were approximately 300,000 chattel slaves brought to the United States, which was a horrific thing, right? But currently, right now, in the world, there are 40 million slaves. It's something that we don't seem to talk about often in our culture. Like, we talk all the time about something that happened 200 years ago when there were 300,000 slaves, but we're not talking about the 40 million slaves that are currently existent in the world today. You know, it's some, something about the devil. Like, he gets us to focus on the wrong things. Like, he wants us to focus on the things that are not as important as the things that are extremely important. Even in our own life, like he wants us to not focus on Jesus, but focus on some area of sin and stare at that area of sin and think about that area of sin and mull over that area of sin and be mad at ourselves for committing that area of sin when focusing on Jesus fixes the area of sin. He's really good at getting us to focus on the wrong thing. So slavery is bad and we don't like it. Um, and Jesus comes and he starts telling these stories about God who is a person who came to forgive debts and free slaves. And it was almost one of the primary messages that Jesus brought to the people of that region that he came to forgive the debts and free the slaves. And it's hard for us to contextualize in Western America because we don't live in that idea of slavery. We don't actually understand it. 
We're so separated from it, we don't get the context of most homes in Rome at the time had slaves. Most of them. That's most people with any kind of wealth. If you didn't, then you were a slave to someone else. And Jesus came and he was preaching this message about freedom to the slave, about forgiveness of debts. In the context of a Jewish people that knew that co-signing was a terrible idea, that taking on the debts of another was unbelievably foolish, Jesus was representing a God who became our co-signer. Became a God that took our debts upon himself. I'm going to read you Romans chapter 1. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain. Because God has made it plain since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Part of who Jesus revealed in God that was so profound was someone that takes a slave out of slavery, someone that takes someone who's indebted and relieves them of their debt and places that debt upon themselves. But we live in a culture where we do not believe that we're indebted to God. We don't believe that there is any kind of moral debt. That's gone away. And part of the reason is because we don't even have the context of debt. We have bankruptcy laws where you can get sign up for a credit card and be $80,000 in debt and be like, can't pay, don't have the money for it, file a bankruptcy, and they wipe away your debt. How do I know? Because I know lawyers that do this for a living. And people on their way to bankruptcy will then crank up their credit card debt times 10 knowing they're going into bankruptcy to affirmatively steal from other people. And say, it's not a big deal, it's just the credit cards. It's a big deal between you and God. Because he's personal. He's not thinking about the credit card companies. He's thinking about you. So Romans tells us that even though we don't believe there's a debt, there is a debt. You know, there's a concept at law. Uh, it basically means ignorance of the law is not an excuse for breaking the law. And so if I come down onto the street one day on Pine Street and I come out and I have a stab fest, start stabbing people, and they arrest me, they're like, hey, you're not allowed to do that. And I'm like, I didn't know that. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. Where is that law written anywhere that there's no stab parties in New York City? And they're like, well, it doesn't matter if you didn't know it. Because you live under the construct of our safety, of our system of law, because you live in this setting and receive the blessing of the secured system that the law creates, you are under the auspices of all the laws. Whether or not you affirmatively say, I know about X law, you are still, it's your due diligence to know about those laws. And so the maxim legally at law is ignorance of the law is not an excuse for breaking the law. And in our world, the people outside of our family of God don't understand that they're living in the blessing of God. They don't understand. They think because the world keeps saying, like, you came from monkey brains and you're nothing but a monkey swinging from a tree, hanging on a rock, spinning around the universe into darkness. And you're like, what do I, who do I owe? 
Like, I don't owe a debt to anybody. I can do whatever I want. And, and, and it's such a deceit. And God's saying, I made this beautiful place and this beautiful planet and family and romance and love and mystery for you to enjoy and abound in and flourish in. And that's the construct that you live under. And accordingly, I want you to live in a way that creates flourishing inside of that construct. That's the obligation. In Romans, Paul is laying out this treatise, this incredibly complex way of that the world is. And he continues, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified his, him as God, nor gave thanks to the, him, but their thinking became futile and foolish, and their hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, and they became fools, and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like mortal humans, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served creative created things rather than the creator. It says, Romans says, Paul says, the world started create, started worshiping the things that were made. You know, you turn into the thing you worship. It's one of our fundamental principles in Christianity. You turn into what you worship. So if you worship money, do you know you become cold and hard? When you worship cash and that's all you worship, you become cold and hard to those around you. When you worship sex, the fire of sex, you become inflamed with that passion that's never satiated and you destroy the things around you. You know, when you worship intellect, the things that are lofty and above, you become arrogant and boastful and you're better and smarter than everyone around you. Do you know you become whatever it is that you worship? And God has called us to worship him to become like his sons and daughters. And instead, Paul says, we begin to worship the things of earth, the things that are created instead of the creator. And we begin to become like that we worship. And it says in verse 26, and because of this, God gave them over to their lusts. <clears throat> Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoned natural relationships with women, and men were inflamed with lusts for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them the minds over to depravity, so they did what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only do those things, they approve of those who practice them. Romans chapter 1 is not messing around. It's saying that when humankind decides it doesn't want to worship God anymore, what it does is it worships the earth and it worships itself. Does it sound like a world you've ever heard of before? A world that's either worshiping itself or worshiping the earth around it. We begin to worship the gift instead of the gift giver. And we live currently in a world that is all about worshiping the gift and not the gift giver. And because of that, 
we live in a world that's deeply indebted. Luke chapter 7, Jesus comes to a world that's that deeply in debt, a world that is trashed itself morally, a world that is running headlong into its own passions, and God is incredible in his grace and mercy, and he comes in the midst of that chaos to be our co-signer and to take the debt on his own shoulders for us. Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, there's a Pharisee at the house, and he was hosting this dinner, and he was looking at Jesus while this was happening. It says a woman of the street. The, the connotation is it was a prostitute that came in and was standing behind Jesus, and she was pouring out this alabaster ointment, which is this massively significant gift, this perfume upon his feet. And she's crying and weeping and kissing his feet. And the Pharisee says in his heart, if this guy was really a God guy, he wouldn't let this filthy lady touch him. He would know if he's a prophet, she's a filthy, dirty whore, and she's not allowed to touch him. And Jesus, it says, Jesus, knowing his thoughts, says, Simon. The word Simon uh, in, the, in the New Testament, that Greek word means twin. It means that you become like those who you surround yourself with. So Simon the Pharisee, has, he's embodying that culture of pharisaical judgment on another. Another who's desperately trying to approach God, fully aware of her brokenness, fully aware of her sin. She's coming to Jesus' feet, and this guy is saying, how dare such a filthy whore touch Jesus? Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Jesus said a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And then when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. This is Jesus revealing the heart of the Father to a world that has decided to worship the created rather than the creator. That the heart of the Father is to cancel the debt of the debtor. And it says, Jesus said, now which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So Simon, the Pharisee, in his moral superiority, can't receive the greatness of the gift giver in his own presence. And Jesus has come to co-sign our debts, and I fear that he comes to a culture often that doesn't believe that they're indebted, that doesn't recognize 
the amount of separation, the chasm that we have no business attempting to cross. And what happens in a culture that doesn't believe it's indebted, he that loves, that is forgiven little, then loves little. And then we have people that recognize God, if not for your mercy, if not for your grace, my life would be absolutely broken and there would be no hope for me on the day of judgment. When I stand before your throne and you look at my life and, you'd said to, and you would say to me, what have you done with the gift I gave you? What did you do with the beauty and the adventure and the sunsets and the children and your wife? And where would I be before God if not for Jesus? And the scripture that says that he that loves little is because he believes he was forgiven little, but the prostitute who knew that she'd been given, forgiven all of her sins out of the overflow of her heart, the overflow of her affection, she gave the greatest value that she had. Isaiah 53 says, surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, struck down and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. This last verse 6 says, We like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I, I don't know if... Um, I don't know if it's just by my the grace of stupidity upon my life that I recognize how broken I am and how in need of Jesus that I actually am. And in all of my perfection or all of my striving and my law practice or my business or all of my other stuff, that if not for Jesus and his forgiveness, if not for his salvation, if not for his grace and mercy, I'm lost at sea. And it's not because of my goodness or my right standing or my perfection but if that leads the way then my life of love towards God is limited but if my brokenness leads the way then my life of love towards God is lavish and in the context of this scripture that we started co-signing a debt for someone is the stupidest possible thing to do and yet Jesus did it for us. There's an old hymn that says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. This is the basics of the gospel. That it's not in my own strength, it's not in my own gifting, it's not in my own striving. It's because Jesus revealed the heart of God and took penalty of sin upon his shoulders and it introduced a new covenant and a new way to engage and enter in to a relationship with a God that loves us that desperately wants to know us that wants to restore us and redeem us because that's how good he is and we have a story that's complex and beautiful and multifaceted and compound and the story tells us of a real God who really loves us. Not because we're so good, not because we do it so well, but because of his extravagance and his grace. Amen? Amen. Worship team, why don't you come up? If you'll stand with me, church.
I just want to take a moment and be grateful to a God that would co-sign for us. Jesus, we're thankful today that you've paid it all. God, for a world that is raging towards worshiping itself and the created things and the gifts rather than the gift giver. God, would you remind us of your goodness? God, would you remind us of your grace this morning and the extravagance of your love, the alabaster jar that you poured out on the earth with the brokenness of your son? Lord, that when you were pierced, when you hung on the cross for us, you were literally poured out for our sake. And Jesus, we love you. God, and we ask that you would draw us in to your goodness and your kindness, God. The greatness of your adventure, the goodness of your story. for listening to our podcast. We really believe that God wants you to know him in a personal and tangible way. If there's any way we can assist your journey, please reach out to kcnyc.org.